0: Turn to Luke chapter 3, if you would, so we continue in Luke's gospel together. Well, before we stand and read it together, um, you've heard me say that as a kid, uh, one of my favorite movies was The Wizard of Oz. Who else loves The Wizard of Oz? Who has read the actual books? Whoa! I'm impressed. Um, love that movie, and I can see it now. There, toward the end, Dorothy and Scarecrow and Tin Man and the Lion. Um, remember, they they walked trembling down that long, tall, emerald glass corridor to see Oz. I believe for the for the second time, and they get there and they see. Remember that giant floating head with flames shooting up and all these loud noises. And he says, Do not arouse the wrath of the great and powerful Oz. And says some other scary things. And Dorothy courageously snaps back at him and says, If you were really great and powerful, you would keep your promises. Meanwhile, Toto, cute little puppy, runs over and pulls back that curtain to reveal that there's just a little a little nervous man behind the curtain pulling levers spinning dials talking in the microphone and then Oz says pay no attention to that man behind the curtain so the great and powerful Oz is not so godlike after all he's just a man and you know Many have thought through the centuries that, that same thing about Jesus. Um, and the folks who saw him that day when he came to the Jordan River to be baptized by his cousin John may have thought, he's just an ordinary man, another one like us. He's just a 30-year-old carpenter from Nazareth coming to get baptized along with the others of us. But the story of Jesus uh, is just the reverse of that scene in The Wizard of Oz. Oz presents himself as great and powerful and godlike, but when you pull back the curtain, you you just get a man. Jesus comes to us as a man, a carpenter from Nazareth, a, a nobody from nowhere. But when you pull back the curtain on Jesus, you see that he is great, He is powerful, and he's not just God-like. He is God. He's the Son of God. He's God himself in the flesh. And so in our scripture lesson this morning from Luke 3, God wants us to see that there's more to Jesus than meets the eye. First, at the baptism of Jesus, God's going to pull back the curtain. And in fact, Luke says he opens the heavens. God's going to pull back the curtain and show us that Jesus, the man, is the Son of God. And then in the genealogy of Jesus, Luke is going to pull back the curtain and show us that Jesus, the Son of God, came to be the second Adam, the man we've all been waiting for since Genesis 3.15. So, brothers and sisters, the word of the Lord has come to us this morning. Let's stand and hear what he has to say to us from Luke chapter 3, verses 21 to 38, and when I get to all these names, I tried to get Dave Vernetti to read this for me this morning, and he wouldn't do it, So when I get to all these names, uh, an old preacher told me one time, he said, when you get to those names in the Bible that you don't know how to pronounce, he said, just say them loud and proud and confidently, nobody else knows how they're pronounced either, so I'm going to do my best. Here we go, verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. In Matthew's gospel, it says the heavens were ripped open. Pretty dramatic. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, which is Eli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Negai, the son of Math, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josech, the son of Joda, the son of Johanan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shialatiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kasam. The son of Elmadam, the son of Er, the son of Joshua, the son of Eleazar, the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Meleah, the son of Menna, the son of Mattatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, The son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Cainan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahaleliel, the son of Cainan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for your word. And as David prayed earlier, Every bit of it matters, and we ask that you would help us uh, to see why it matters today. You help me um, to explain and preach it faithfully, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So, friends, these 18 verses may seem odd or obscure, Uh, Like something we should just uh, skip over so we can get on to the rest of Luke. Uh, But these verses this morning are going to open a curtain and unveil something so glorious, so unbelievable, you're not going to want to miss it. So stay on the edge of your seat (laughs) because this is what... um, I received out of these words this week that I want to share with you. Here's what these 18 verses are going to reveal to us and unveil for us. God wants to reveal to you the great desire of his heart this morning. The great desire of his heart is that he longs that we would know him as our father the way Jesus knows him as his father the great desire of God's heart for you this morning is that you would know him as your father the way Jesus knows him, as his father. I love the way that uh, Dr. Michael Reeves put it. He said, uh, catch this, God's great purpose in salvation was that the son might share his sonship, bringing us with him to enjoy his father being given the very access and relationship to the Father that the Son himself has. Jesus shares his own relationship with the Father, with us. In the gospel, the eternally cherished Son shares with us the love that the Father has always lavished on him. That's mind-blowing. God's great purpose in salvation was that the Son might share His Sonship, bringing us with Him to enjoy His Father. And this is what the New Testament teaches. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Romans 8, All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, who have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we, we cry, Abba. Father, and Paul said it similarly in Galatians 4, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, the spirit of sonship in Romans 8 is the spirit of his son, Jesus, in Galatians 4, he sent the spirit of his son into our hearts to cry the very words that Jesus cries, Abba, Father. And by saying that all who are in Christ Jesus are sons of God, he's not excluding women. He's saying that all who are in Christ, male and female, have the status and spirit of the Son, Jesus. And now all men, women, boys and girls who are in Christ, the Son, have the spirit of the Son living in us so that together with Jesus we cry out, to his and to our Father, Abba, Father. That's what Dr. Reeves means when he says that God's great purpose in salvation was that the Son might share his Sonship, bringing us with him to enjoy his Father. That's what God's great desire for you is. Later in Romans 8, Paul said it this way, that God predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he, Jesus, the son, might be the firstborn among many brothers. I thought about that this week and I was again stunned. What that, wait a minute. That's what he wants for me? That's the desire of God's heart for me. That's amazing. God wants me to share in the relationship that Jesus has with the Father. God wants me to be a son of the Father and a brother to Jesus so that I can experience and enjoy the love they have for each other. You understand what that means? It means that through Jesus, if we are in Christ, we get caught up into the life and love of the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So how is that possible? That's what I think these verses hint at this morning. They tell us how it's possible. So here's, here's a summary of the main points of the sermon this morning, which are two, not three. Um, It's in your bulletin, this little um, statement that Kent Hughes came up with. Here it is. Christ, the Son of God, became a son of Adam, that we sons of Adam might become sons of God. So the first two lines of that make up, our first point, and the second two lines, our second point. Christ, the Son of God, became a son of Adam, that we, sons of Adam, might become sons of God. In verses 21 and 22, in the baptism of Jesus, we're going to see that Jesus is the divine Son of God who came in the flesh of man as a son of Adam. Okay? And then in the genealogy, verses 23 through 38, we're going to see that Jesus is the human Son of God who came in the place of man as the second Adam. Okay, so those, that's where we're headed. Let's look at the first one. Christ, the Son of God, became a son of Adam. Jesus is the divine Son of God who came in the flesh of man as a son of Adam. So, as we look at uh, verses 21 and 22, at this scene of the baptism of Jesus, um, But what do we learn about who God is? Again, I want to quote Dr. Reeves. He says this so well. This is is something we learn about who God is in this scene where Jesus is baptized and praying. The Spirit comes down. The Father speaks. The whole trinity is there involved. Dr. Reeves says, against every other belief system in the world, the Bible teaches us that the God revealed in Jesus Christ is first and foremost a father. God is eternally a father. Before God created, he was a father loving his son. Throughout scripture, we see the terms God and father equated. Only when Christ comes forward to reconcile us do we know God as father. And he He references, he says, why do the creeds start with the fatherhood of God? I believe in God, the Father Almighty. Because, he says, this is the deepest revelation of the identity of God. Without the knowledge of the Son as our Redeemer and the Father as our Father in Christ, we do not properly know God. So God is ripping open the heavens here to show us who he is all the way down. He is Father. And then I wonder, what do we learn from these verses about the relationship between Jesus and his Father? Look first, how does the Father think and feel about his Son? He says, you are my Father. Beloved son, with you I am well pleased. God's heart toward Jesus is, I love you and I delight in you. That's what well pleased means. It's full of affection for Jesus and approval of who he is and what he's done and will do. I love you. Notice, I think Luke is the only one Uh, who records these words as second person to Jesus. The other gospels, he says, this is my beloved son. But he's speaking right to Jesus to let him know, I love you, and I delight in you. You make me happy. What would it have been like to hear that voice that day? So we learn that the Father loves his Son. But then I asked this is a series of, series of questions I was asking myself as I went through this passage. What does Jesus' willingness to be born in human flesh after all, which we've already seen in the first two chapters of Luke, but then to be baptized in the place of sinners, which we talked about last week, um, what, what does that say? What is Jesus coming to this moment at the River Jordan. What does this say about what Jesus thinks of his father? It says that he he loves his father. He honors his father. It actually says that he's willing to be in partnership with his father to bring many sons to glory, as Hebrews 2 says. That's what God was after. He was in sending Jesus, was bringing many sons to glory. It says that Jesus is happy to be in partnership with God uh, and to come so that he, Jesus, would be the firstborn among many brothers. So Jesus loves his father. He honors him, and he's in partnership with him to accomplish what they both want to see happen. They want to see many sons, many sons. A whole family of sons of God, and then I ask, what does Jesus praying say about his relationship with his father? Well, you can imagine it means that he's in constant communication and communion with him it's it's so it's very relational, and later Luke's going to tell us in chapter five, uh, he's going to say... Jesus would withdraw to desolate places to pray. And the language that's used there is he's not talking about every now and then. He's saying he would continually withdraw to desolate places to pray to be with his father. And what what do you think maybe Jesus might have been praying at that moment at the baptism? It doesn't say. We don't know. We can only speculate, but I would think it'd be safe to say that it's something similar to how he taught his disciples to pray. Our Father, my Father, may your name be hallowed and glorified. May your will be done on earth as it's done in heaven. May your kingdom come. That's why I'm here, Father, right now. I want to do your will on earth as it's done in heaven. Father, give me this day, my daily bread. Give me what I need to carry out the mission you've sent me to accomplish, the work you've called me to do. Now, when he, would he ask for forgiveness of sins? Well, he was there. He didn't have any to be forgiven, but he was there being baptized, representing Sinners so perhaps he would say, Father, forgive them. Lead me not into temptation, which is actually where he's headed in the next chapter. And deliver me from the evil one. I would imagine that that describes the content of what Jesus was praying in that moment. He's communicating with his father. He's communing with his father. He's absolutely dependent on him in this very moment. And then why does the Father send the Spirit upon Jesus at that moment? Well, we learn in chapter 4 that Jesus is going to say that the Spirit has anointed me to preach the good news, to release the captive. So I think the Father, perhaps in response to Jesus' prayer, is sending the presence and power of the Spirit to anoint Jesus for what he's about to launch out and do in the rest of Luke. He's coming to give Jesus his presence, his power, his purity. He's anointing his son to fulfill the ministry that they have agreed he would do. And this week as I reflected on this scene, I began to think about what it might look like for me and for you to share in this relationship between the Father, uh, between the Father and the Son, and I have I had a couple of questions for myself, and see if these might help you as well. I, I was thinking about God the Father saying, "You are my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased," and it struck me: the God of the universe, what? What is he excited about? (laughs) What does he love? What does he delight in? What pleases him? It's Jesus. And so I, reflecting on that, ask myself, do I have love and delight in Jesus that even reflects the Father's love and delight in Jesus at all? So when I start thinking about what I get excited about and what I delight in and what I love, it just was convicting. Do I have the same heart for Jesus that his father has for him? What would it look like for me to say to Jesus, I love you and I'm well pleased, with, I delight in you. I mean, that's part of what we do here, right? On Sundays. That's why Sundays matter. But when else do I say those things to him? Another question for myself. Jimmy, as you consider the heart of Jesus for his father, do you have the same kind of heart and relationship with the father that Jesus does? So do I love and adore the Father? Do I, Jesus said, I only say what I hear my Father say, I only do what he tells me to do. Do I have that kind of uh, love and honor and respect and desire for God, the Father, that I am constantly one, wanting to know, what do you say? What do you want? Do I have a heart that is ready to serve him in the mission he's called me to serve? Am am I ready to show up around sinners and sacrifice myself for them? Not in an atoning way like Jesus did, but am I willing to lay down my life, deny myself, pick up my cross, follow Jesus in loving the people he's put in my path? Do I pray? Am I in constant, consistent communication and communion with him? Not just talking to him and saying, hey, here's what I need, but communing with him and saying, here's here's what I'm thinking. Here's what I'm scared of. Here's what I'm worried about. Here's what I desire, Jesus, uh, Father, take it. And then my third question for myself. Are you aware that the Spirit of Jesus is powerfully present with you as you fulfill what the Father has sent you to do today? And I have to say that a lot of the time I hit the ground running without thinking a whole lot about whether he has sent the Spirit, which he has, upon me and in me so that I might accomplish what he's called me to do today. So Christ, the Son of God, became a son of Adam, and we got a glimpse of that at the baptism of Jesus. What about this genealogy of Jesus? Well, that's the second part. Christ, the Son of God, became a son of Adam so that we sons of Adam might become sons of God. So in the genealogy, we see that Jesus is the human son of God who came in the place of man as the second Adam. Because that's where the genealogy ends, doesn't it? It ends by saying, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam the son of god and in this sense the son of god is adam was god's man that he created in his image in that sense he was the son of god and in that sense jesus is also the son of god he's a man and he came to be what adam was supposed to be and he came to undo all the wrong that adam did now Um, I would encourage you to go later and look at Romans 5, but I want to read you at least two verses from Romans 5, verses 18 and 19. Because I think this helps us understand what it means that Jesus is the second Adam. Paul says, "Therefore," (coughs) Therefore, as one trespass, one sin, led to condemnation for all men, So, one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So, let me throw in a couple of words here to make that a little clearer. Paul is saying, therefore, as one trespass committed by Adam led to condemnation for all men who are in Adam, and men is mankind, men and women, so one act of righteousness by Jesus, and that is probably one act of righteousness, his life, death, resurrection, all that Jesus came to do. One act of righteousness by Jesus leads to justification in life for all men who are in Christ. So all of us are in Adam and therefore um, share his condemnation. But for those who are in Christ... They share justification in life. Paul goes on, For as by the one man's, Adam's, disobedience, the many in Adam were made sinners, so by the one man's, Jesus' obedience, the many in Christ will be made righteous. That's what it means that we sons of Adam might become sons of God because the son of God, became a son of Adam. He became the second Adam. Jesus came to live in our place as the second Adam. What Adam was supposed to do but didn't, Jesus came to do. And what Adam did (laughs) that he was not supposed to do, Jesus came to undo. Now, I think, this is going to be, I think this is going to be helpful. This is from Sinclair Ferguson speaking about Adam and Eve and what they did and how it's related to God as father. Sinclair Ferguson says, the truth was that the Lord had given Adam and Eve an entire cosmos of good gifts to enjoy. In turn, he provided them with a single positive law. Now, You hear that and you go, well, that didn't sound positive to me. What he said was, do not eat of that one tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But it's actually a positive command. And here's how Dr. Ferguson describes it positively. He says it's a single positive law. Here's how it's positive. They were to show their love for him, for the father, by refusing to eat the fruit of only one tree on the basis that their loving father said so and that whatever he commanded must be for their good. So not eating from that tree was actually a positive thing. It was love your father by trusting that what he's told you not to do is for your good. By trusting that what he's given you is enough and you don't need any more. He goes on to say, the lie by which the serpent deceived Eve was enshrined in the double suggestion that first, this father was in fact restrictive, self-absorbed, and selfish since he would not let them eat from any of the trees. And second, that his promise of death if they were disobedient was simply false. Thus, the lie was an assault on both God's generosity and his integrity. Neither his character nor his words were to be trusted. Now, here we go. This, in fact, is the lie that sinners have believed ever since. The lie of the not-to-be-trusted-because-he-does-not-love-me, false father. The lie of the not-to-be-trusted-because-he-does-not-love-me, false father. That's what Jesus, the second Adam, came to show was a false, was a lie. He came to live as one who believed my father can be trusted and I will do or not do whatever he says because it's got to be good because he's good. Jesus came to do what Adam didn't do, to undo what Adam did Dr. Ferguson says, the gospel is designed to deliver us from this lie, for it reveals that behind and manifested in the coming of Christ and his death for us is the love of a father who gives everything he has, first his son to die for us, and then his spirit to live within us. Jesus, the second Adam, came to do that for us so that we could become sons of God. Now, here's what you're all wondering. What about this genealogy? How does the genealogy of Jesus show us that he's the offspring of the woman in Genesis 3.15? Let me remind you of what Genesis 3.15 says. God is cursing the serpent, who slithered into the garden and started this whole mess. And this is what he says, in the curse of the serpent is a promise for us. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And you might think he's talking about multiple offspring, but then he, he changes it to singular. He says, he, her offspring, He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, we all know in our study of Genesis that that's a promise, a prophecy. It's the first gospel, the preaching of Jesus, the Messiah to come, who would undo all that the serpent had done. How does the genealogy of Jesus show us that Jesus is that promised offspring of the woman? that God promised would come and crush the head of the serpent. Well, Luke starts, and he goes backwards. He starts with Jesus, and he goes all the way back to Adam, to God. But the way I'm going to say this, I'm going I'm to go, I'm going to start with Adam and go forward, okay? And I'm not going to mention all of those names, but there are some very significant names in that list that show us that, that show us the, the line of the offspring of the woman starting with Seth who was born to Eve after Cain killed Abel. Seth was the son of Adam and Eve from whose line would come that promised serpent crusher. Continue on in that long line. The son of Enoch. Remember Enoch, Genesis 5? He was the one who didn't just live and die, but he walked with God. All of these names I'm going to mention point to Jesus, point to him. And we saw this as we went through Genesis. So he was the son of Enoch. Jesus is the son of Noah. and Jesus is the ark. Jesus was the son of Abraham, the faithful one. Jesus... Uh, Jesus is the promised offspring of Abraham that would bless all the families of the earth. Jesus is the son of Isaac, who gave himself up as a sacrifice in obedience to his father. Jesus is the son of David. Jesus will sit on King David's throne. And he was everything that David that was good about David and everything that David wasn't. And then Jesus is the son of Mary and Joseph, of whom God said, that son is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And in that little phrase, beloved son and well pleased, he's hearkening back to Psalm 2, where God says to his son, the king, his messianic king, you are my son. And he's also referring back to Isaiah 42, where he's talking about the Messiah, and he says, This is my servant in whom my soul delights. So, Jesus is that promised offspring of the woman who would come to crush the serpent for us. (laughs) He would come to destroy the works of the devil. And so the question is, how do I become the son of God? If the Son of God came to be a son of Adam so that I, a son of Adam, might become a son of God, how, how, do, I, how do I get into Christ? <laughs> how do I get in on that deal? Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So we have to come to him, the Son. John chapter 1 says, but to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So, what that means is, we take all of this that's been said about Jesus as the son of God who came as the son of Adam, the second Adam in our place to live the life that we should have lived, to die the death that we deserve to die. We receive him in. Trust in him and say, Father, by your son, I want to be your son. And of course, you all know the famous verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, many of you in this room have done that. You are sons and daughters. You are sons and daughters of the Lord. You are sharing in the relationship that Jesus has with His Father. But if you're like me, uh, the quality of that sharing ebbs and flows, doesn't it? So as I as I finish, I wanted to, I asked myself this question: How does sharing in the sonship of Jesus? And having God as my Father help me when I'm anxious? How does it help me when I'm angry? How does it help me when I am or feel accused? How does it help me when I'm addicted? How does it help me when I'm alone? How does it help me when I'm apathetic about God or afraid of what he's calling me to do? And I'm comforted by this. And this this is, I'm landing the plane. Jesus prayed that you and I would share his very own relationship with his father. John 17, he said, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. Hang on to that. Why? To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So Jesus wants us to be with him where he is so that we would experience with him the love that the Father has for him, the love that is in us because he is in us. He wants that. Now here's my question when he says that they may be with me where I am, where is he? What is he talking about, with me where I am? Well, we do know that he's at the right hand of the Father. But listen to this from John one eighteen. Speaking of Jesus, John says, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side So he's talking about Jesus, Jesus, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus is at the Father's side. And that word side means his chest, or as we might have said in the old days, his breasts, or maybe in the older days, the bosom of the Father, right here. That's what... He is at the Father's side. It's like you'd almost have to sit in his lap to be that close, right? That's where Jesus is, and that's where he wants you and me to be with him so that we may see his glory and know the love to know and hear the heartbeat of the Father for him that is now for us because of him. Now, what is that going to do to your anxiety? (laughs) Jesus says, Father, I want them to be so close to your chest that the sound of your heartbeat for me and for them soothes their anxious hearts. What would that do for your angry heart, particularly if you're angry at God? I thought it was fascinating that Dorothy said to Oz, how do you call yourself great and powerful when you don't keep your promises? You ever felt that way toward your father in heaven? Get close to him hear his heartbeat, hear his heartbeat, hear his promises over and over again. See Jesus as the yes and amen to every one of God's promises and let your anger with him rest there. He's not afraid of it, by the way. And when you're accused by your own heart, by somebody else, by the devil himself, you're accused because, yeah, you continue to sin. You continue to hurt and harm. Hear the heartbeat of your father say, you are my beloved, with whom I am well pleased. You're forgiven. When you're addicted, and you found something else that feels better, tastes better, Numbs the pain better. Remember Psalm 16. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore and fullness of joy. The joy and pleasure of knowing God as your Father and being known and loved by Him as your Father. That's a full and forever pleasure. A full and forever joy. Hear his heartbeat for you. When you're feeling alone, you can cry out to him and say, I, have, I feel alone. I feel alone. I have a father. I have a father. Where are you? Like a child lost in a grocery store, wondering where her mother or her father is calling out for them. And when you feel apathetic about God, when you just, you just don't have any passion for him, you feel apathetic about what he's called you to do in your life, to, to be his son, to be his servant. Um, again, Cry out to him. Tell him, I don't feel anything. a Father, I don't care. And hear his heartbeat for you. You're my beloved, and you am well pleased. And finally, this one is one that strikes me lately. When you're afraid... That doing what he calls you to do is going to hurt. It's going to hurt when you're afraid that doing what he's going to call you, what he calls you to do, in his providential ways of things he does with your your body, (laughs) and when you're afraid of doing what he's called you to do in serving and loving people you're afraid, and you say, Lord, I can't do that because that's going to hurt too bad. He says, come here, son. Put your head right here. I've got you. Listen. Friends, this is how we hear the heartbeat of God. This is why we come. This is how we hear the heartbeat of God. Lord, Thank you for this table, and thank you um, that you have amazingly invited us in into the relationship that you have with each other, Father, Son, Spirit, that through Jesus we enter into that community of love.